0: Hey everybody, just a quick heads up before we get to the show. We recorded this episode a few weeks back with the intention of getting it up for the second week of Ordinary Time early in June. Then, as so often happens, life intervened. We are releasing it now because the new Fast and the Furious movie is opening in a few days and because we thought this was a really fun conversation. So, as always, it is a joy to talk about this dumb and amazing movie with my friend and I
1: hope you enjoy it. Sunday Morning Matinee is brought to you in partnership with The Christian Century, a magazine for progressive church leaders. culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. And today, as we get ready to head back to movie theaters, and with Fast and Furious 9 beckoning us back there in just a few weeks, Adam and I are going to revisit what is the official Sunday morning matinee-designated best film of that franchise, Fast Five. My name is Matt, and I'm the pastor at University Presbyterian Church in Austin, Texas. I'm Adam, and
0: I live my life a quarter mile at a time, Matt. And I am... (laughs) And I'm also the minister of Overbrook Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, where they don't know about my drag racing past, but um, maybe they do know. I live my
1: life one lectionary Sunday at a time. (laughs) In our first segment, Justification by Faith, we're going to discuss how Fast Five helps us think about life and the church and the world. (laughs) In our second segment, preaching to the choir, we're going to discuss how Fast Five might
0: help us understand the lectionary passages for June six, which is the second Sunday of Ordinary Time. And then, in our third segment, postludes, we'll take a second to share another little preacher thought on each, from each of us on something else that we're reading or watching or following.
1: So, Adam, there was a time when the Fast and Furious movies were trying to tell a serious story. The first one in that franchise is basically a reskin of the interpersonal cops and robbers drama of Point Break, except with cars. With Vin Diesel as the now infamous Dominic Toretto and the late Paul Walker as FBI agent Brian O'Connor and this whole cast of LA underground types around them. It's, It's gritty in a sort of turn of the millennium sort of way. It's dusty and grounded, and honestly, it's the sort of movie that doesn't get made a lot anymore, at least not for theatrical release. And The sequel isn't that far removed, and then the wheels sort of begin to slowly come off the idea of this franchise and by time the credits roll on fast five our team is now an ocean's 11 of international celebrity motorhead criminals taking down a caricature drug lord by cantilevering a 10-ton safe through the downtown streets of rio de janeiro so there's like a before and an after of this movie before it was melodrama and after it's become spectacle and i'm not sure any franchise in movie history has quite gone on the journey that this one has taken. But I have to admit that I do find something specifically satisfying about this entry. I think it finds the middle ground, which is an odd thing to say about a movie with the <laughs> aforementioned cantilever and <laughs> safe in it. But somehow it manages to be both ridiculous and personal at the same time. And I, and I do keep coming back to it. But, but I'm curious, Adam, does this one work the same way for you? And, and does this phenomenally ridiculous movie prod anything in you about our work on this podcast and theology in the world?
0: So I think this movie, like our James Bond discussion, has a sort of overarching discussion about the, the, the franchise as a whole and like you said, its history is just I find incredibly fascinating about how we came from what was a very low budget film about LA drag racing, um, yeah, reskinned as from Point Break, um, to a multinational franchise that just mints money is. Um, it's crazy. It doesn't make much sense. And it, it's truly a unique story within Hollywood, especially since the second and third films were almost like throwaway films. They were just kind of like they they, they had barely any budget. They didn't bring back what was the, the most important character in the movie. And yet they still gained audience over time so that then you gather all of the principal characters who are in the first movie back for the fourth movie, and it itself is a full-on mess, and yet it makes movie money, and then finally we get to Fast Five, where everything si- seems to coalesce, and I don't know why. I-, I don't know if it's the the sort of, we know these characters long enough to like actually like just live into this... Um, part of it they freshen it up with a little bit of the rock who is always charismatic and you know has since become one of the most bankable action stars in the world they um they redo the setting where we spend the entire time in brazil they're not sort of jet setting around the world but neither are they in los angeles any longer its themes are shallow You know, it's just like they say say. say family back and forth to each other about 100 times. Right. But with a slightly different intonation, as if you're supposed to know what, like, this degree, this way of talking about family is supposed to mean. There's there's a pregnant woman. Paul Walker's having a, he's going to become a father. There's a heart-to-heart scene that is maybe the funniest scene in all of the fast franchises, where out of nowhere, um, Brian says to Dom, Dom, tell me about your father. <laughs> and he, he tells, tells a story about the, his father was always there, always at dinner. And it, it's all so dumb and ridiculous.
1: And it's frustrating in that moment because there are so many good ways that that scene could have been written. <laughs> Like it doesn't take that long for to have Brian reflecting on becoming a dad, and then there's a segue into tell me about your dad, but instead they can't even get the on ramp, they just go right for it. And there's something about going right for it that is just kind of hits you like a brick, uh, just doesn't land anyway.
0: Well, it hits you like a brick, but I think that that's that's part of the ethos of this movie, right? Which is like sure. So allow me to make a strange car metaphor, right? Like this is a movie, these are movies ostensibly about drag racing, at least originally, and then they become heist movies. But drag racing is a straight line for a quarter mile, right? It isn't about turning. This isn't the F1 or NASCAR even. This is just about straight ahead as fast as you can go. And there is something beautifully simple about that conceit as the overarching ethos of a movie like this. The characters seem to have some background and some past. If you've never, if you haven't seen the first Fast um, Four movies, you have no idea who any of these people are, but they all seem to know each other. And so you're just along for the ride and off they go. And then it just kind of moves at a breakneck speed And for two hours and 12 minutes. And by the end, everybody's like back on a beach. And there's something, I don't know. I find it deeply satisfying. And I, I think a couple of reasons why this is particularly satisfying is that because everyone is beautiful in it and it's always lovely and it looks great. And Justin Lin is awesome. He's, he's a really good director. Yeah. Um, So so Justin Lin has a hand on this and seems to understand all of it. Um, and then there's the spectacle part of it, which you noted, which is just it. It grabs. It's not going to grab your heart because it's not a sentimental movie. It's not. It's the dumbest movie. It, it'll make your teeth ache. It's so dumb. So like, don't bring your brain to it. What you bring is that like part of your ganglia that like finds it really satisfying to hear like a car rumble beneath you like that's the part it's going for or like the adrenaline the gland that pumps adrenaline into your body that's what this movie is trying to to go towards and actually i appreciate that because there are still times so here's a here's my story which is a guy in my neighborhood works for the local ferrari dealership Right, and so they have cars on their um, that are in their showroom that sometimes just need to be driven because cars need to be driven; right. they can't just sit there. So every so often, he'll drive through the neighborhood on his way to and from work, driving whatever is the newest model Ferrari. Right. And as it pulls up, it makes a sound that is both deeply annoying and incredibly attractive and sexy. Right. And I am always, and I look at it and I go, damn, look at that car. And I'm kind of entranced in in a way that my eight-year-old and four-year-old sons are both kind of entranced. And I don't know if this is a male thing or not. I I don't think it is. And we watch it go by and we kind of look at each other and are left speechless with it. And. For some reason, the Fast and the Furious movies capture that feeling, and that feeling happens to also be incredibly ubiquitous across culture, that there, there, isn't, a, there isn't an ethnic or, um, or racial heritage in this country that doesn't have its own car culture, where they just like they love these things. And we can discuss where that comes from or why they love it. But in some ways, the Fast and the Furious franchise realized that that is a very real feeling. And if you could tap into that, then people will appreciate it.
1: So a, a couple of things. I mean, I, I, th- I think I, I don't want to speak to the the gender dynamics of car culture more broadly. I don't feel versed enough. Th- this movie clearly posits that as a super masculine thing. Yeah. Right? Like th- this movie has some incredible racial and cultural diversity in it. And in some ways, I mean, that this point has been made before the fashion, the furious franchise is, is, um, is, is, is kind of beautifully transgressive in some ways, at least by the standards of when this movie came out, especially for the effortless effortlessly diverse central cast of characters that it has. Uh, and also, there is a lot of hyper on display here. Uh, and and the, the kind of machismo, both in the characters and behind the lens of the camera, that show up is what was sort of overwhelming to me on this particular viewing mm-hmm. of it. I mean, you have two women in this central cast of 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 characters one of whose role in this movie is to be pregnant and the other of whose role is to get the bad guy whose palm print they need to slap her on the butt and those are the, and and so like that is the those are the that's the agency that is afforded to the women in this film um and i think there's i, I, I don't i don't want to get too eyed about the kind of universality of that that rumble feeling that you're describing, which I think is right, but I'm not sure it goes for everybody. And I don't, certainly don't think this film describes it in universally accessible ways um, for, for that exact reason.
0: Yeah, that's right. And I think, I mean, so in fast forward, they kill off Letty, right. Which who is supposed to be the antidote, To that like she is the the female who doesn't doesn't follow the the particular the specific tropes and and this movie misses her presence i think and i think michelle rodriguez who brings a different energy to her acting than gal gadot jordana brewster and then the um the brazilian woman whose name is escaping me but all of those women look the same too (laughs) I mean, it was kind of crazy. Christy was like watching this with me and was like, Do you, are they all the same? Right. No, they're, they're all the same person. And I was like, no, there's there's actually three of them. Yeah. Um, so you're right to recognize that. It is a hyper-masculine movie. And yet it it doesn't take itself, I don't know. It doesn't take itself so seriously, right? I think it recognizes that like Dom beating... Hobbs in a fight is ridiculous. <laughs> like, but it's okay with it. I don't know. I, I, this movie is so confusing that, like, where it comes from, like, it doesn't have a particular, um, easy source, right? We can look at it point, like, maybe the original one was the reskin of Point Break, but like, this is like Dirty Dozens with yeah. crossed with like, a sort of random strange heist movie with the initial part of Point Break being present. I mean, it just keeps, it's a pastiche of so much that shouldn't make any sense with bad acting and bad writing. And then by the end of the day, you're like, that was a fun two hours.
1: Yeah, Sarah watched it with me this time and uh, uh, was intending to go to bed for the entire movie and just stayed there, which is very unlike her and a testament to like, just how compulsively watchable this thing is, even as it is, it is so much. It something manages to somehow be a lot more than the sum of its parts. Because I think we could point out all the ways in which its parts do not make any sense at all. Um, I think here's here's, here's here's my here's my uh, uh, kind of film analysis 102 final paper argument that is apropos of nothing, which is that I think one of the, one of the strange things in the brew of this movie is the last movie we podcasted about. I think there's some Butch Cassidy and it's Sundance totally. kid in this movie. I think yes, this is, I think this is, it. I think this is, I think this is Butch and Sundance <laughs> two. This is the, this is the fantasy alternative ending to Butch and Sundance um, where not so much stylistically, but just at a character and plot level, you have this, this major duo of outlaws who are run out of rope in the U.S. and have to flee to South America, uh, in in want of greener pastures. Um, there is the, the love interest, that comes with them. Who is also sort of in relationship with both of them, and we—I mean, obviously not romantic here, but it's Dom's sister. Uh, they, yeah, they, 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 they get there and end up being in this other relationship with the unmovable force who is the law, who is played by the Rock here. Though the fantasy version of this is they team up together <laughs> instead of just being running into the brick wall yeah. of it. Um, and and while they're there, they. They rob trains together. I mean, the the, the opening act yeah, the of this. Tra- film,
0: there's a literal train robbery that tra- looks almost identical.
1: Looks th- 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 almost identical. Those trains, that sequence makes a heck of a lot more sense if they're horses than it, than it does as they're cars. The you are doing millions of dollars of damage to the suspension of those automobiles in that sequence.
0: <laughs> they're it, gonna ride they're them across the desert. They're gonna
1: <laughs> ride like a <laughs> priceless GT40 across the desert and expect to recoup anything from it. That sequence is made for for horses. Um they also have scenes where the the duo jump off of high places into bodies of water. This it actually it actually is the the fantasy extended ending of bush and sundance uh, and, yeah. and i i am sort of weirded out by that comparison and it certainly exists at a level of ridiculous spectacle that bush and sundance isn't trying to get to they're thematically really different but i couldn't not fold them together
0: no it's totally right i mean they actually start in the same place too right they're all they're in the american west right like Dom right. is being transported on a on a prison bus from one place to the next, and like if the if the metaphor of like car and horse wasn't already there, like here it is. It's like the most it's the most, it's the the most obvious metaphor that's present in this movie because they're outlaws, right? But they're outlaws with the code, and so yeah, right. yeah. There's yeah, totally yeah. a there with a the family, the right? I yeah, mean, Sundance,
1: yeah, 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 with a family.
0: And the Hole in the Wall Gang is supposed to be, if like the, like Butch runs it differently, in the same way Dom does, right? And I, it's, yeah, the the overlap there is 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 on the one hand an indication of how influential Butch and Sundance is, right. but also that this movie is not trying to, um, it, it's not trying to do anything new, so to speak, with respect to like how the movie is structured or what the, what exactly the, the themes of the movie are, what it's trying to do is show you something that you've never seen before with respect to the, the, the spectacle of it. And that becomes the, the important cell of this movie going forward. Right. I think, I mean, were we talking about your, 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 theory of this and James Bond too and how this sort of took over the the silly part.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I think this movie is... Um, I, th- I think Fast and Franchise has come to occupy a place in the cultural zeitgeist that was once occupied by the Pierce Brosnan, Roger Moore era of James Bond movies which were pure spectacle and um, just kind of celluloid ambition, right? What's yeah, the and most ham, Right. right like, what's 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 the stupidest, most ridiculous thing we can get on um on celluloid, um, or I mean, I guess digitally, but and and, and show to people. And you know, fold over the um the famous invisible car sequence from one of the Pierce Brosnan movies with the car versus the submarine sequence at the end of Fast and Furious Seven or Eight, I don't remember anymore. I mean, there's it's, it's, it's they're very 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 similar, um, and, and and I think what what was seen as something of a you know some folks have lamented the departure from the more buttoned up Sean Connery era of James Bond and I think there's a similar departure here for Fast and Furious but people don't have the same kind of emotional attachment to you know the the, the old the, the old ways the, the original generation of Fast and Furious and so they're more they're, they're more open to like let's just make it weird and blow it up uh, whereas Bond has now kind of circled back to the more restrained... Um,
0: yeah, and, and there's, this thing. is not a movie where you fear for anybody
1: Yeah, no. right? Like,
0: there are no real stakes here. Um, no one is getting killed off. No one is, like... Even because you're... it. It's borrowing from superheroes now too, because even if you kill them off, you bring them back. I mean, the the previews for this for Fast Nine have Han in it, and he was blown up two movies ago. You know, Letty died and she comes back the next two movies from now. Like there's and I think there's something at least satisfying about that, which is like, I don't have to care about these people very much. Um, they're not they're not characters that I particularly like they're they're characters that you can poke fun at but it seems like the movie itself recognizes that
1: um and and I want to say I'm pretty sure that when I first saw this movie I had not seen any installation of this franchise since the first okay Uh, and and so I actually didn't have this sense of look at all these familiar faces that we're getting back together from all of these disparate parts of the franchise. Cause like two is in Miami where, and doesn't have, and this sort of takes place in its own little sub world and three is in Tokyo and takes place in its own little sub world. And as you pointed out, like we don't really put most of these characters all together until four and not even all of them then until here in five. Um, But I, that didn't matter to me when I first saw this. Like, I think something about this movie works as a self-contained thing, even if you don't know yeah. everybody. And, and part of it is, um, and you know, what, what's, what's narratively strange about that is that these people show up. Dom knows some of them. <laughs> doesn't even know all of them right because some of them come from movies he wasn't in and 10 minutes later he's making speeches about how they what doesn't matter that the money comes and goes but what matters are the people in this room and i'm thinking you just met that dude 10 minutes ago <laughs> Like Dom's unwavering ability is is th- th- this capacity to create loyalty so in a hot second with folks who will ride with him, right? And and, and that's that that I found uh, just um, admirable and borderline psychotic.
0: It is. It's it's sociopathy. Like it is. It is a problem. <laughs> It, these are my people. Well, how, like, you've not done any of the work to build this relationship, Dom.
1: You didn't and, even go to the other movies. Like, yeah, you didn't, I mean,
0: and yeah, truthfully, Dom, like, you, you didn't want to be in Fast Two, <laughs> even though this one made a boatload of money there, Vin Diesel. You, you came scurrying back when Hollywood didn't, uh, didn't give you all the flowers, man. So, I, there's, there's something. I mean, the way in which this movie and it's like we just got to talk about Dom. I mean, he's it's such he's such a deeply unlikable character (laughs) as a human being. Um, And yet I'm always glad when he wins, like, you know, like when there's so let's talk about other crew movies that like that that we like. I love Sneakers. Sneakers is a great movie. Sneakers is all time. Yeah. I can imagine being like, all right, Robert Redford, you get to be the head of the the crew. Similarly with Mission Impossible, I'm like, Tom Cruise, you take the lead. Go do your thing. Every time I watch a Fast and the Furious movie, I'm like, this guy's an idiot. Like, I couldn't ever see myself like just being like, you know, we just got to follow Dom's lead here. Dom seems to know what's going on. Right. (laughs) Um, and yet, like, there he is, you know, holding down every movie. He's also about, like, 5'2". And the, they put him on boxes to, like, stand around different people. I mean, yeah. Gal Gadot is probably a foot taller than he is. Yeah. <laughs> and it is it, so all of it makes no sense, I think. And yet, theologically, he, he kind of is the center of gravity because he is the one with the code. He's the one that sort of is, is going to tell you. He's the oracle around which he will tell you the code of how to be an honorable thief. And, um, yeah. and that's important. And I, I mean, you need that.
1: Yeah, I, I got to say, I think you could put those speeches in the mouths of other characters in this movie. I mean, if you'd have to rewrite the franchise, but I, th- I think... I think it would be doable. I think I think we make a mistake when we come at this film with kind of narrative character interpretation lenses on first. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think about it this way: like Dom's sacrificial tendencies are. Noble, I guess, but also don't make any sense. Yeah. At the end of this movie, what we know eventually that we don't know in the moment is that when Dom and Brian are driving onto the bridge with the safe behind them, that that, spoiler alert, that safe is empty. They've already switched out the safes. And then Dom and Brian are arguing about who should unhook it so they can drive away to freedom. Well, they could both unhook it and drive away and leave this giant safe in the middle of the road as a blockade. But that would preclude us getting to have this, um, both this little argument about who gets to be sacrificial, but it also would preclude us getting the sequence where Dom then comes back with that safe and just like steamrolls,
0: an All entire parade's worth of police, of,
1: of, of police officers. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think it's because, of course, the movie demands us to read it first and foremost as spectacle. Right. Like, we have to ask the, the movie is going to do whatever work it needs to do character and narrative wise to get the spectacle that it wants. And spectacle needs to be the interpretive framework for understanding whatever else is happening um, and honestly, uh, I I think about this a little bit liturgically. Yeah. <laughs> um, we spend hours cumulatively in staff meetings, very righteously trying to make sure that we have connections between the preaching text for the day, mm-hmm. the occasion of the Sunday itself what anthem the choir is singing, what hymns we're gonna sing. We want there to be, for lack of a better phrase, kind of narrative and character through line in our worship services. But honestly, I think sometimes folks experience those services first and foremost, as spectacle. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, is is a choir anthem that just rocks the house in some way and doesn't necessarily connect to the sermon a better tool for mission in that moment than something that has all the integrity of the text with it? But it's a little boring. but, But it's a little boring doesn't doesn't sit with anybody doesn't rock anybody doesn't give them that rumble that you're yeah. describing right um which is of course why dom is the center of this film because dom is because, because dom is the rumble yeah he is spectacle in and of himself Vin diesel is spectacle in and of himself and so it has to hang there and it can't be nuanced,
0: right? Because that's it, yeah. it's not that's not the point. The nuance gets in the way of the spectacle, right? You don't want people thinking about, um, about does this connect? You want them to open their jaw, right, and and sit in awe, without, um, without a critical way of experiencing it. And I think I I I agree. I think we get we can get a little too delighted with the ways in which we find specific nuance without ever considering if people actually care about that um or if it's just something creatively that we who have to do this stuff every week are trying to do to make it interesting um but i i wonder like I, you know i grew up in an evangelical world where where flash was part of the equation right you know and an important part at that and it turned me off to a lot of it because i felt it was shallow but then there are times when i'm sitting in a worship service and i was like you know it would be awesome if people like
1: moved <laughs> right yeah and and you know and, and flash not being um unique to the american evangelical tradition but like a deep part of the history of, for example, the Roman Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. I mean, the the, the sensory experience of, of of liturgy, of incense, of whatever. Whatever costume drama you want to imagine on a Sunday morning goes back a long time, and it's because folks instinctively understood that spectacle was part of the way in which we were going to receive a story. Uh, and I, I think, you know, Presbyterian churches have their own versions of that, but I but I do think we we wrestle with it more than most, uh, and, and I and I wonder if there's a little bit of wisdom here. Um, For trying to adjust our where we are on that spectrum. (laughs) That's
0: exactly right. I, I have when I was living in Boston, we lived next to this like. Very historic Italian Catholic neighborhood, and they would have festivals every once in a while. And one, I remember one festival, they you start in this little pilgrimage and they carry floats around and different things like that, which is all pretty cool. And then you arrive on the steps of the local Roman Catholic church, and I kid you not, there was a four year old harnessed above the church and swinging on a rope back and forth, like as a cherub like as an angel that is supposed to greet all of these pilgrims who are about to like enter into this church. And, and literally, it's just like, this child is small and hanging. And I was like, oh, this is a bad idea. Like you should not be <laughs> subjecting this child to this. And at the same time, I was like, hell yeah, man. Like you, like y'all you been doing this for a long time. Right,
1: right, right, right.
0: And it made an impression, right? Like I was like, dang, I ain't gonna forget that. In the same way that, like, that safe makes an impression. Like, I'd never seen that in a movie before.
1: No, no. I remember the first time I watched that just thinking, like, this is a remarkable bit of choreography and cinematography. Like, I just, I felt it in my bones. And uh, it still gets me.
0: Yeah yeah it's still got it like the physics don't make any sense but like not a bit of sense in the world and yet the yet the 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 camera works the sound works the destruction Mm -hmm. of it all works the stakes works uh you know there's a little bit of mad there's there's movie
1: magic in that scene for sure absolutely Yeah, it's movie magic for sure, and I think that's a good place for us to to pivot on. But before we do that, we want to say how grateful we are for our partnership with the Christian Century, and want to guide your attention to the great work they are doing. They recently published an interesting article on Virginia Mollenkat by Amy Freikholm. I love Amy's work, and this article is definitely worth your time. And if you are listening to the show and don't yet subscribe to The Century, Sunday morning matinee listeners can get a free trial magazine subscription. For more information, visit ChristianCentury.org slash podcast offer. All right, Matt. Let's talk about
0: preaching the text for this upcoming lectionary from year B. It's June sixth. We're beginning ordinary time. Uh, We have the people asking for a king in 1 Samuel. We have God's judgment on Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. We have Paul calling the church in Corinth to endurance, and Second Corinthians, and then finally we have the very, very strange passage in Mark three about Jesus and his family, and uh, that's a lot. That one. Uh, where does Fast Five land for you as you look at the lectionary passages?
1: I mean, this this Mark passage is sort of long and multifaceted, and it feels one of those like one of those times when the lectionary editor is just sort of knew they needed to put something from Mark three in there and couldn't quite figure out where to start and stop the pericope. Uh, and I, and I don't blame them for it. It doesn't <laughs> does it, it doesn't really feel like one coherent bit. Um, but I, 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 I mean, at, at the risk of picking the low hanging fruit, I do think at the very end of this, you have this moment where, uh, Jesus comes out of the house and is, 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 is looking for his mother and brother and sisters and then says, who are my mother and my brothers and everyone around him. Um, and then he looks at everyone gathered, this whole crowd gathered and says, here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. And that's Jesus proclaiming a different definition of family. Yeah, uh, and, I, and I think we get, in this movie and and certainly accelerating through the rest of the franchise, th- this repetitive claim um, from Dom Toretto that whoever rides with him is his family. You get it from The Rock here, I'll ride with you Toretto at the end of the film. Uh, and then this insistence that we've sort of already touched on that uh, whoever sits around this table um, and, and is willing to go on elaborate international heists with him is part of his family. I, and I think there is, as, as many have pointed out something, something beautiful about that for this franchise, that it, it's, it's redefining what family relationships uh, can be and can look like, especially in a super multi-ethnic way. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, um, it reminds me of, um, clergy, myself included, who, especially as Dom does this without actually really knowing everybody that well, I mean, that was what was striking to me in this film, um, of clergy who who use this sort of church family imagery to describe their own congregations. I, I certainly do it because Not everybody who is a part of our church is a member of our church, and so to avoid membership language, I tend to use church family language, even as I wrestle with, like, well, not everybody's family is a safe space for them, not everybody's biological family is a safe space, but can I use that metaphor to kind of reclaim the idea of family for this gathering of folks that comes to worship and comes to mission with us at UPC? I also do it knowing that we don't always live up to the high standards mm-hmm. we might want in family. Yeah, And so I say it sort of aspirationally. Like, I say it even to include the folks that we might barely know, like the folks that show up in this movie that Dom has just met 10 minutes ago, and now he says they're family. And I, I kind of I make fun of him for it, but kind of do the same thing in the church all the time. Hey brother, I say, UP, I say UPC <laughs> family. I say the UPC family all the time, and I, and and I don't really mean it as a description of who we actually are. I mean it as a claim about what we could be. Yeah, it's aspirational. I think it's I, totally aspirational. Yeah, and I, 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 and I think I believe that if I say it enough, it'll come true. You and Don both. And I, yeah, yeah, and I think, and, and I think that you know, I think here's a sentence I didn't really wake up today expecting to say, I think Jesus and Dom Trevetto and I have something in common here. Right. And the way that we are invoking that imagery, um, aspirationally.
0: Well, and uh, you know, there is that moment in the movie too, Matt, where Vince, who has betrayed them comes back. Right. And, It's as it's about as tender as Dom is going to be in a way that like felt honest, where he welcomes him back to the table. That there was a sort of redemptive piece here that I was kind of I had forgotten was there. I was like, oh, that was that was actually pretty deep. I kind of I was I was touched by it in a way that I was not prepared to be, where this person who previously had welcomed them to his table who then messed up and, and, and endangered them is now part is, is, is welcomed back. And I think that's like the best part of the church too. Yeah. Is that if we are going to call this a family, if we are going to use these images, like. Well, you can't write people out of your blood, you know, like they're part of the story. They're part of the history and they like, they have their place. What Whether they deserve their place is like, a, is kind of irrelevant um
1: yeah that's interesting it makes me wish that and 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 i don't know why they did it makes me wish that the film did not ultimately kill his character off because it 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 erases the obligation to live into that in future installations right right it's it's already hard enough for them at times to live into brian o'connor as former cop um Mm -hmm. and i think it would be I think it would be interesting to see the sort of long-term implications of having Vince's character in the gang going forward but they don't they they don't actually have to reconcile with that because they just kill him off instead
0: no they don't and but but they do in other places and I think this is the interesting thing about this franchise is and especially as I sort of think about Genesis 3 here which is like here's the first here's the first consequence right like the the humans break bad they do something wrong and there's got to be consequences but this begins to set up what becomes the, the repeating narrative trajectory of the Bible over and over again, which is like, make up, break up, make up, break up, like bad turns good and then good eventually turns bad. And that that happens a lot within scripture. And here in Genesis three, we see the beginning of that narrative arc and that narrative arc also it tends to show up in Fast and the Furious. It shows up with Vince eventually, like right, like Vince breaks bad, then he comes back. He's he's redeemed, but there is this happens over and over. I mean, The Rock does something similar. He's he starts out as an enemy and then becomes friend, then turns enemy again. Um, later, there's a there's a the Jason Statham character Shaw, right, who is going to kill Han. And then is welcomed into the family, <laughs> yeah, right in in some crazy way, yeah. Um, so I I just I can't I can't. It's hard to read Genesis three without also sort of beginning to read what is the the back and forth of, of like of a betrayal and reconciliation that's going to sort of be at the center of scripture, especially as the people deal with God, at least in the Hebrew scriptures, right? Like that's going to be back and forth, back and forth. And they're going to long for each other in these strange ways, but they're also going to hurt each other and they're going to constantly ask what gives. And every so often there are these beautiful moments where they just like, where things are at peace for just a moment and the reconciliation has taken place and then it all gets fouled up again, right? Because you need, at least in the Fast and the Furious movies, you need, um, you need conflict. And I think that's, I mean, really interesting is like, I don't, I mean, were people putting tags on movies? Like, w- was Marvel doing this in
1: 2011? Yeah, because um, they'd already done it at the end of Iron Man in 2008 okay. with the with the Avengers. Tease yeah, the, the Avengers piece,
0: but like this, like they begin everything's great right like dom and his new girlfriend who was formerly the woman who was looking for him. <laughs> <laughs> it, it like hangs out with uh brian and mia and there's there's a baby on the way and then you're like oh we have found eden eden has been repaired and then you get a few credits and then Eden is broken again, right? Like because now Letty is back and Letty is going to disrupt whatever reconciliation has just happened here. Yeah. I, I think that there's there's that scriptural moment I think is part of of faith too. And part of something that we're gonna as humans have to reconcile as we pursue ministries of grace and mercy.
1: Yeah, I mean, I agree with all of that. I I do think that, once again, we we run the risk of interpreting the films through conventional narrative character-driven lenses, (laughs) where, like, the reconciliation of Jason Statham with this crew is not motivated by character and storytelling. It's motivated by capital, right? You you yeah. you, you yeah. have these big iconoclastic stars and char- and characters that are developed, and then we want to keep them in the franchise and together. And the way to do that is to rearrange their relationships with one another. Um, but the, those, that rearrangement of relationship is not the motivating cause. It's the it's the effect. Of the capital desire to keep those faces on the screen together, and so I, I, I think just, I think we just have to be a little bit careful about how we interpret that. Um, but yeah, no, it, we there, totally there's, there's something beautiful. There's something beautiful yeah. about the screenwriters going, "All right, well, if all these characters are stuck together, how are we going to make them relate?" Which is not totally dissimilar to like what the world actually is. Right, we're all stuck in this thing um
0: and we have these um, weird families like we have a bunch of friends and like the people you didn't think you were gonna be friends with you became friends with by some strange mechanism and the person you thought was the enemy on your session suddenly becomes your ally and you're like what the hell just happened there and like it 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 is a melodramatic picture of all of that but it, it does bear some resemblance to the ways in which our relationships with people continue to shift and change over time and you know that that's a reflection of um, of
1: life in the world yeah all right adam i think we should move on i let's think we it. It. i think we've i think we've done the full quarter mile of this film <laughs> and uh, i got no more uh, nitrous in the tank for it so let's move on to our last segment uh, it's called postludes and it's just a chance to get one other little preacher thought from each of us on something else that we're watching or following so adam Tell me this. What's your postlude for the week? Um, so the other day,
0: I you know one of the things I like to do in preaching is to to find things that everyone knows about and then try and reframe them in some new way that helps people both reconsider them, but also points to some larger theological or religious point in the in the sermon. And um, and I kind of got fascinated with the footprints poem. Um, and its ubiquity, especially in like the 70s and 80s, where, you know, it's that poem where everybody, you, I would be surprised if no one knew what I was talking about, but here we go. it you know, someone's walking down the beach and they're talking to Jesus and they see that at the hard parts in their life, there's only one set of footprints. And Jesus says, Yeah, that's when I carried you. And this is, this has such a fascinating trajectory in the culture because it was it was the first sort of like or it was one of those like viral things that happened before like a viral thing could happen. And the way that it began to disseminate itself was like in newspapers, like they would print these in newspapers across the country. And it just kind of like, you can actually trace like all of the different instances of it showing up in newspapers. And then it like found its way into like national media so that Ann Landers was beginning to to, like publish this. And then in 1980, Ronald Reagan uses it in a speech. So from there it becomes totally reproduced and I have vivid images of like tranquil beach with the footprints poem written beside it. And then below it, it would always say anonymous. Well, the the, the provenance and the origin of the poem is in like serious doubt. Like there are at least four different people who have been <laughs> fighting each other tooth and nail for authorship of this particular poem. Um, no one can quite agree. One person has taken a lie detector test as so like to say that they've done that another person was in the process of trying to like hire the forensic and analyst who like was trying to study the unabomber papers to uh to make the case that she had written it the type of people who wrote it are fairly litigious sorts so they sue everybody it's the history around the Footprints poem is actually more interesting than the Footprints poem itself. As we think about the ways in which like memory and the creation of something that is like a deeply unoriginal idea, right? Like this is not, a, this is not an original idea, the idea that like either A, you would notice footprints. Um, there's like, there's a very famous old Chesterton poem about footprints or not poem, but sermon about footprints in the sand about Jesus being like walking with you and seeing that Jesus is walking with you. Um, But about how something can be like so present in the imagination that we don't really know where it comes from. And that's a really fascinating idea to me, especially as we consider sort of how we create and where our creative forces come from, Um, considering we are all consuming in many ways, the same media over and over again, and so I wonder: in what ways are we saying and writing the same poems over and over again? So that's that's the the sort of rabbit hole I fell down two weeks ago as I was trying to f- figure out where the hell did this footprints poem come from and why was it so popular?
1: I, I now want you to produce the like long form podcast deep dive in the history of this poem. I think it would be <laughs> fascinating.
0: Yeah, and. And truthfully, like I remember reading it, and it blew my mind the first time I wrote it.
1: You know, so like 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 any good meme, right? Like any like good any viral good meme. meme. Yeah,
0: yeah. So that's my post story. What about you, Matt?
1: So uh, I'm going to return us to the world of cinematic spectacle to talk about the Mitchells versus the Machines, which is the new Sony Pictures animated film that's up on Netflix. Adam, have you guys watched this?
0: Um, I've seen parts of. Elliot was watching it the other day, and I came in about uh maybe halfway through and i was like this movie is really good it's doing things and i need to go back and start to watch it from the beginning
1: you have to go back and watch it from the beginning this movie is the real thing yeah um so it's produced by lord and miller who made the lego movie for sony pictures animation and then made into the spider-verse um and it's got that dna all the way through it. Uh, I think those movies make a sort of interesting trilogy one to another. It's directed by a guy named Mike Riando, who worked on Gravity Falls for a long time, which right. is also a, an, excellent, um, an, an excellent touchstone. Um, the Mitchells vs. the Machines is, and I say this with n- knowing the stakes of what I'm about to say, this is the movie that I wish that The Incredibles was. <laughs> <laughs> cool. It is so exceptionally good. The the, the Mitchells are not a superhero family. They are a very sort of classically normal American sitcom family. They are trying to drive their eldest daughter across the country to drop her off at college. This road trip was an ill-conceived notion by the dad who is trying to um, find a few more moments for reconciliation with his eldest daughter they have Hmm. a long and fractious relationship the opening of this film the in the first half hour is as much kind of family tenderness um, in unexpected ways in 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 some sequences that paralleled for me Hmm. the sequences of the notorious Pixar sequences in the opening of Up and in the opening of um, WALL-E. Not mm. as extended, but this like, oh, this is not the movie I thought I was showing up to sort yeah. of way. Yeah. Then they get in the car to drive across the country and the robot apocalypse happens. The robot apocalypse is brought about by a, basically a Facebook Google clone that um, has, has put... Alexa-ish devices everywhere. And the Alexa-ish devices don't want to be, um, don't want to be superseded by the latest model. And so they rise up and revolt. So what this movie has is both the, the, the family dynamics of the Incredibles without all of the sort of weirdly Randian superhero politics of that movie. It has a much better social critique because what it's doing with um, our relationship with technology is incredibly incisive. And it's incredibly funny. It's just so funny. And it's so beautifully put together and hilarious. This is a must-watch. I love it so much. Um, and I and I don't want it to fall through the cracks into like generic Netflix animated thing. That your kids will find, grownups should watch this movie. It is um, exceptional. That's, That's awesome. my take.
0: Yeah, I, I I've been meaning to run back to it, but now I'm now I'm all in. We'll go do it.
1: Yeah, Lego Movie, Spider Verse, and Mitchell's Versus the Machines is about as good a little trio of modern animation as you will There's, find anywhere, and and better right. than better. Those three are better than what Pixar has done in the meantime. Is, Easily is what I would
0: say with that. Yeah. Those, uh, at least those first two are fantastic. All right, Matt, that about wraps it up for this episode. This is also our last episode for the summer. We are going to take a break. Um, both Matt and I are pretty tired. And so (laughs) I think we both have fairly extended vacations (laughs) planned, whereby we won't do anything, but like stare, um, at water. So um, we'll be back in the fall with some, new, uh, with some new movies, some new guests. But if you like the show, be sure to leave a rating on iTunes. Come to the show page. Uh, we'd love to hear your feedback. Drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter at the show page at sundaymorningmatinee.com. Special thanks, of course, to our friends at Christian Century and the fine editing skills of Derek Weston. Our music today was composed by Bobby Brinkerhoff. Big thanks to him and his band, The Rock's Goatee. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Adam. Go
1: see some movies this summer. I'm going to do it the same. Yep. Amen.